This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. To kick off the new year, Cultivating Place offers out the first in what will be an ongoing and intermittent series exploring fresh starts in our horticultural and gardening world. Following up on last week's program with Duran Chavis, in which we explored some of the obstacles, hobbles, and even failures of imagination in the botanic garden world, this week we dive into a botanic garden endeavoring to imagine a fresh start to what they do, how they do it, and to whom it is of greatest service. The Botanic Garden at Smith College opened its well-endowed collection in 1895 and celebrated its 125th anniversary in 2020. This week, we're in conversation with Tim Johnson, director of the garden going on four years now, and Jamila Pisa kern a student in her junior year at Smith. And I spoke with Jamila and Tim a little earlier in the fall semester I welcome them and their voices to the program today. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much. I'm going to start out by having each of you describe your respective roles there at Smith College and with the Botanic Garden, a an historic uh, college botanic garden in our country. Um, let's start with you, Tim. Sure. My role at the Botanic Garden of Smith College is that of the director. And I really think about this job as being at the interface of very inward looking work and very outward looking work. Uh, So the inward looking work is keeping my team of 14 sort of moving and coordinated and making sure that we are doing this work as a teaching collection, a special teaching collection And I'm really making sure that we're doing this work in a way that sort of reflects college priorities and college goals to make sure that the student experiences everything that it can be. And then the other way that I'm looking is sort of out to the college, uh, to the administration, to our community of alums and donors and supporters, and making sure that they understand what we're doing and why we're doing really matters and the incredibly unique place that we occupy, not just as a college and university garden, but actually at Smith College, this uh, historically women's college. Yeah. Jamila. Yeah. So I am currently in my junior year at Smith. My first two years, I um, worked on the outdoor crew at the Botanic Garden, so helping to maintain the outdoor collection, which was has been such a wonderful experience. And I feel so lucky that I get to, you know, interact with the collection and be outside. Now this semester, I'm not on campus, but I'm still working with the Botanic Garden um, as a digital resource assistant. I'm editing videos um, for the horticulture classes, um, which is a very nice way to stay involved. And I get to look at beautiful videos of our campus. Mm -hmm. And there's so much that we can learn from plants. So um, I feel like that's kind of my relationship to plants is trying to learn from them. Uh, Let's go back to you, Jamila. Where are you speaking to us from this morning? And um, give us a little bit of your background that would have led you to want to work on the outdoor crew or study botany or horticulture in whatever pathway you are 
currently on right now? So I'm currently at home in Natick, Massachusetts, which is um, about an hour and a half um, from Smith and Northampton and about 45 minutes outside of Boston. I would say my earliest influences, I I grew up in Jamaica Plain, um, which is one of the greenest areas in Boston, um, and it's in the city. And um, in front of our house was a park with baseball diamonds and two playgrounds. Um, right next to our house was Forest Hill Cemetery, which is a Victorian garden cemetery. And I think most influential um, right adjoining our backyard was the Leland Street Community Garden, um, which is truly a community garden in the truest sense of the word. There's no private plots or fences. Really, everyone is welcome to pass through the garden, um, help in whatever way they can, whether it's turning the compost, planting things, harvesting vegetables, or um, even if you're just picnicking on the lawn. So starting from the age of six or seven, um, I started attending the gardens steering committee meetings with my mom. And we really became very involved with the garden community. Um, and we lived there until I was about 13. And even now that we moved away, we're still very involved with all the people there. And so did you know when you were applying to Smith, was the Botanic Garden and its its resources, were they a draw for you in looking at Smith? And did you know you would become involved with that kind of horticultural botanical programming at the, at the school? I came to Smith knowing that there was a Botanic Garden, um, but I didn't really know too much more than that. Mm -hmm. um, in high school, I worked at a local garden center and I did have a strong interest in plants and a really deep love for botanic gardens and greenhouses especially. So I knew I wanted to get involved, but I wasn't entirely sure how. And then there is an interesting story with how I actually came to work at the botanic garden, which is I had met a friend in my the first few days, uh, my first few days on campus. Um, and I met her mom as well. And, you know, I, it came up in conversation that I was really interested in the plants in the botanic garden. And so my friend's mother was staying at an Airbnb and her Airbnb host uh, had been the previous like interim director of the botanic garden. Uh -huh. And so my friend's uh, mom who had just met me must have spoken very highly of me. And so then uh, her Airbnb host, Sue, she met my uh, then now boss, John Berryhill, the landscape curator at the gym at Smith and <laughs> told him, you have to contact this girl because he had already done all his hiring for the semester. You know, they weren't advertising any positions, but Sue said, you have to hire this girl or contact her. So I got an email from John asking if I was interested in a position at the Botanic Garden. And I said, yes, absolutely. That is a great story. The universe had a plan for you and it, it made sure that it put it in your pathway over and over again, it sounds like. So that's pretty great. Yeah, absolutely. What is your current major, Jamila? Not that you're going to change it as a junior, but... 
So I'm actually an anthropology major, but I would say my main passion is uh, my minor in landscape studies. And I'm also soon to be adding a concentration in community engagement and social change. I love it. I love it. Okay, Tim. First of all, I just have to say that's a, that's an adorable story, Jamila. I didn't know all that, but it also, I think, shows how a lot of students find their way into the botanic garden, you know, word of mouth. We have a lot of students who show up and sort of say, I don't yet know why I want to be here or how this relates to my academic journey, but I, I want to be here. And that's just a lot of fun to see students from a huge range of majors finding that they're compelled to work with plants. You know, my story with plants is pretty, it's not a straight line. I, I think I'm an unlikely candidate to end up here. I'm, I'm from, I'm, I'm coming to you now from Florence, Massachusetts. I'm about 12 minutes from campus. I'm on campus one day a week, checking things out and, and checking in with my teams but I'm actually from Wisconsin, you know, really grew up thinking that I would live in Wisconsin my entire life. And that was sort of what I was destined to do. And plants have really opened the world for me. I think the first big thing that happened in my life was finding an unlikely love of orchids while I was still in high school. It's kind of strange thing, but I started buying the beat up orchids from big box stores and and nursing them back to health and getting them to flower. And they just are so charismatic and really captured my attention and had so much personality. But even when I went into college, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and, and I didn't really see plants as a future. In fact, I remember being in an economic botany course and saying, plants are boring, they don't do anything and sort of challenging the professor to prove otherwise, which eventually he did. And the other big thing that happened was in, during that college course, taking a trip to the Marjorie McNeely Conservatory at Como Park and Zoo in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and walking through their economic botany exhibit and seeing all these plants that were being used and have been used for tens of thousands of years, and then realizing that people worked here. This was people's jobs to take care of these plants. And I, I think that was really the big hook. And eventually I ended up after college, had the glorious job of delivering furniture for about 18 months <laughs> and decided it was time to go back to graduate school. And so I went to the University of Florida and worked in their environmental horticulture department. I got my master's and PhD there working with native orchids, working on seed physiology and conservation, wow. and pollination biology, and really there sort of developed what I think of as like kind of the heart of my love of plants, which is around seeds. And those plants that I once claimed to do nothing, now I see how incredibly exciting the seeds are. Yeah. So after that, after completing my, my PhD there, I ended up working for Seed Savers Exchange in oh. Iowa for oh. a number of years as the head of the preservation program, running the seed bank there before coming to Smith. And I seem to plants are just something that continue to grow with us. Uh, no pun intended, pun intended. <laughs> and, you know, at Seed Savers, I really found a love of actually gardening, mm -hmm. uh, moving sort of beyond the academic love of plants. And now I've got about 200 square feet of 
raised beds in my yard. I'm looking out the window at them and they've really been a salvation, especially during the pandemic. I think they have for so many people. I want to pause and just note how my ears perked up when you said, you know, that as a a young person, you didn't see plants as a future. That conceptually on so many levels, just individually in your life as a livelihood and more, um, you know, at the biggest philosophical level for us as a species and a planet is something we are, uh, I think you and I and Jamila are actively working to make clear to the world that plants are our only future. I also was struck by this idea that you know, many students um, come to a university and or come to Smith College specifically and aren't necessarily aware of the historic botanic garden or the conservatory, and yet they are compelled to it once they are there, many of them. And I love that thought because it was certainly true for me in um, my undergraduate work. And, you know, there was this refuge and solace to be found in comfort in these green spaces in the midst of, you know, what is intense and and often stressful uh, academic years, even though they're often portrayed as just party, 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 that isn't the case for, for the lion's share of students. They are intensely focused and, and trying to achieve dreams. And the release that a garden provides is not to be underestimated. How long have you been at the Botanic Garden there? And tell us a little bit about the history of the Botanic Garden. Sure. I've been with Smith for three years as the director. We're celebrating our 125th anniversary this year. And it was really pretty radical because at that time, if we think about science, the science of that day was botany. And so when the college's first president declared that there would be a botanical garden and that the college would have an arboretum and that that arboretum would be both there to make the campus aesthetically pleasing, but also to serve as a, as a teaching and a learning resource, he was putting a stake in the ground that said that women would be taught science here. This was a place where women would have access to science, to learning the scientific method. And that was pretty radical at the time, uh, at a time when the world was sort of still saying, maybe science isn't for women. Uh, Definitely plants aren't for women because while it's okay for them to draw pictures and engage in art, it's not okay for them to engage in taxonomy because ultimately we're talking about plant sex, and that's not appropriate for women. And Smith College instead said, this is appropriate for women. So that's kind of our legacy here. And one of the things that I've found and continue to find really enjoyable about working at Smith is that there's an appetite for thinking about the ways that a garden can be used for social and environmental change, social and environmental good. And we spend a lot of time sort of thinking about and acknowledging, just coming to terms with the idea that botanic gardens have not historically been accessible or friendly to all people equally. Um, Mm -hmm. And that there is a a certain level of cultural competency of stepping into these spaces that can be really intimidating. 
And me and my team, we can either accentuate those feelings of intimidation or we can break down those barriers pretty quickly. And that's what we really want to do. I often sort of equate this story um, in different terms, which is I remember the first time walking into an art museum and having no clue how to act. What, where can I go? How close to the paintings can I be? Like how, how much time do I spend in front of a painting? Do, do I stand out? And now after visiting a couple of museums, it becomes pretty natural to move into these spaces. And we wanna make sure that our students know that they're welcome to sort of figure out that cultural competency with us so that they feel comfortable walking into any green space and that they feel like they belong there. Um, you know, we're in a discipline that's incredibly white. Um, it tends to be pretty male dominated and that's a big problem. It's a huge problem for botanic gardens we're really challenging the legacy of thinking about these places as just pretty places. The things you just talked about, Jennifer, how do we use botanic gardens as healing spaces? How do we use them to build community? How do we help them to address mental health challenges? How do we use them to actually make the world better? Those are the things that really compel me uh, at, the Smith, at Smith College and compel my whole team. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Tim Johnson is the director of the Botanic Garden at Smith College, which opened in 1895 and celebrated its 125th birthday in 2020. Jamila DePisa Kern is a junior at Smith. We'll be right back for more on how this venerable university-based botanic garden is striving to meet the needs and challenges of our times with both heart and imagination. Hey, it's Jennifer. Happy New Year. Here we are in the first week of 2021. Welcome January, welcome winter, and welcome KWMR Public Radio in Point Reyes Station, California, broadcasting Cultivating Place for another growing year. Thank you. Listeners near and far, do you have a public or community radio station in your area on which you would like to hear Cultivating Place? If so, send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. I'd be happy to give you the language and tools you need to introduce your favorite podcast to your favorite station. Public and community radio stations across the United States help connect households with their regions. They help support communities, economies, and cultures of care. Cultivating Place is a fantastic addition to their programming lineup and a great value at that. We have great statistics, great graphics, and out-of-this-world testimonials from you all and from other stations like KWMR to share. So again, if you have a public or community radio station in your area on which you would like to hear Cultivating Place, send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com, and I will get you everything you need to introduce your favorite podcast to your favorite radio station.
We're back now to our conversation with Jamila DePisa Kern, a Smith College undergraduate, and Tim Johnson, director of the Botanic Garden at Smith College. The interesting thing to me, right, in listening to this history is is to consider that really strange and I don't ever completely understand it when I'm looking at the history, ways in which these cultural institutions contracted and contracted and contracted into who they were deemed to be for. Because, of course, prior to the rise of established academia, women were actively involved in you know, land and plant care and breeding and collecting. But with the rise of academia, they got sort of filtered out. And and similarly with, you know, all sort of diversity of backgrounds, every cultural time and place across our globe has been actively involved in, in gardening and plants and the study of them at whatever level. And yet somehow these contractions were allowed to take place. And now we are hopefully breaking those down and opening back up in ways that are going to be beneficial for everybody. And it's exciting to see it, but it's just always so disturbing to look back and see how these different restrictions and exclusions came to be. So when you first came to campus, whether it was on your first tour or interview or when you first came in as a student, can you give me a visual description of what you are called to in the garden space there? Yeah. um, I have a very um, distinct memory of one of my first experiences um, with the Botanic Garden. So when I came to Smith, I um, participated in a pre-orientation program for students of color called Bridge. Um, and one of our activities was a tour of the Botanic Garden. And on that tour, we were shown this amazing tree called the Camperdown Elm. Oh. And it grows right next to um, the Lyman Plant House. And it's just this beautiful uh, weeping elm tree um, that has this really, really cool trunk where you can actually see where two different trees were grafted together and sitting uh, underneath the tree really feels like such a cozy space um, where you're surrounded by these branches it's like you're in a little hidden room Mm -hmm. but you can still catch glimpses um, of what's going on in the outside world you can see paradise pond um, which is sort of down the slope Um, And I just felt so drawn to this tree. I even wrote an entire paper on it for my Mm -hmm. introductory landscape studies class during my first year. Yeah, that is is a great description. And we'll have to make sure we have a photo of that Camperdown elm um, in the episode notes for listeners to go and see. They are magnificent beings, and um, I know two historic ones on this side of the country. So if you're ever, if you've never been to California and visited Filoli, they have two paired um, 
historic Camperdown elms that have that same sort of personality to them, Jamila. Um, Tim, what about you? And and maybe give a little context for listeners. How many um, acres does the Botanic Garden cover? Uh, and how many plants are in the collection before you describe your visual sort of touchstone there? Yeah, we, I think uh, maybe the most important thing is we, we talk about our students as as living in a botanic garden. Mm. The college, the main campus is 125 acres and our arboretum extends across the entirety of the campus. Mm. So our students are literally learning in a botanic garden. They are eating in a botanic garden. They're sleeping in a botanic garden. Um, the Probably the most uh, influential sort of topographical feature of the campus is that it's arranged in a terrace of three levels. The lowest level, as Jamila mentioned, is the Mill River, which there's a, there's an impoundment creating what we call Paradise Pond. Uh, it's a great view from the front of Lyman Conservatory from my office, looking out over it every once in a while, we get otters in the pond and then an email goes out that there's otters in the pond and it's very, very exciting. Then as we step up, there's this middle terrace, which is where the Botanic Garden is and where one of our three main lawns are and the academic buildings, some of the academic buildings. And then when we step up one um, tier higher, we're onto sort of the historic core of campus, which actually overlooks downtown Northampton. Um, and this is where the college really started. And so it's the densest set of buildings, of, of academic buildings. And there's another, there's two more of these historic lawns. And then surrounding them are lots of mature trees, incredible specimen trees. Um, we have about 10,000 plants in the collection. Mm. Um, most of them are actually in the greenhouse. I think we have about 6,000 accessions in our greenhouses. It's about 12,000 square feet under glass in a number of different compartments. And so there's a, there's a room dedicated to um, arid plants and there's a fern room and there's a palm house with a high ceiling um, with tropical plants. We have a cool temperate room sort of showcasing plants from similar um, environments, but around the world. Um, and so there's all these different environments that you can walk into and walk through in the conservatory. And then scattered around campus, we have about six acres of highly manicured named gardens. We have a Japanese garden and a systematics garden mm. and a rock garden. In fact, one of the oldest rock gardens in the country, the oldest extant rock garden at a college and university. Um, we have a formal garden, Capon Garden, which is, has these three rooms similar to the uh, English style of gardening with tall hedges and, and lawns. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of I'll also say down along the river, we have some wildlands. We have some just forested area that receives minimal maintenance. Um, and so it's quite a, it's quite a diverse landscape 
you've given us a very lovely summary, um, especially that description of the students living and sleeping and breathing and, um, you know, moving around within an arboretum is, uh, a luxury that not many people in the world have um, and one to be appreciated every single day. So if there's one sort of vignette that you could describe to us that speaks to you um, personally, describe that for us, Tim. I think that for me, one of the places that I feel continually drawn to is actually our stove house in Lyman Conservatory, our, our hot room where we have it's dedicated to orchids and <laughs> bromeliads. Um, you know, as I've mentioned, uh, recovering orchid file here. Once I had kids, I had m- many fewer plants. But it's a space that throughout the year, you sort of see these floods of different genera of orchids flowering. And so there's always something new and interesting. Um, and orchids are just so weird and wild. They're sort of the exception to almost every rule about plants. And so it's a place that I find that I'm always bringing people in to show plants or to have them smell something or to make them look at something. Um, that's kind of, the, that's my, the place where I, I don't want people to miss when they're coming to campus. Yeah. And I would imagine, I don't know, maybe um, you can both speak to this, but in the um, shortest, darkest, coldest days of a uh, Western Massachusetts winter um, or Central Massachusetts winter, uh, to go into the orchid house must be um, therapy in and of itself. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, we have you know to have benches and spots where students can sit and and you know work or just relax. We see these spaces utilized quite often by students and by the community as well. That's great. That's great. So, you know, from these specifics of how we each are drawn into these these places and these relationships with these plants, you know, from both of your perspectives and given where we are in the world um, and the the stress on our college and university systems, you know, as well as every other system in the country right now with, you know, environmental, you know, global public health, social injustice. What, what would you say were some of the greatest resources for the world, for our communities, for our students in making sure that our the, the botanic gardens or plant research and study departments of colleges and universities are, are cared for and tended and nurtured so that they continue to thrive in this world. Because I worry, I have seen here certainly that uh, in my local university, um, I believe botany has been uh, dropped as a, a major, and uh, we do have an arboretum on our campus here as well, but it is certainly not being maintained at the level it was 15, 20 years ago. And I know that at this moment in time, that is the wrong direction for our uh, our students to be moving in terms of the resources they have available to them. Can, can you both speak to that a little bit and maybe go with 
whichever one of you thinks of what they'd like to say first. Right. We we have seen really since the 70s a move away from orga- organismal biology, including botany, towards, um, you know, genetics and molecular biology. And in the 70s, we saw this movement where where colleges typically had botany and zoology programs being those being merged into biological sciences. Mm-hmm. And um, you're right that it's it's a challenge. I think the we have a lot of counterparts. There were a lot of schools that had botanic gardens, and a lot of them don't anymore. Um, or they've downgraded them so much that they're not really functional. They're just, uh, you know, they're another um, um, accessory, something to, some oddity on the campus. And, you know, for, for me, one of the things that I'm really excited about, though, is the way that disciplines across the board, not just biology, are really finding that plants are relevant and plants mm. are of interest and plants are a solution. Mm. So that, that gives me a lot of hope. Um, I remember having a conversation with a student who was doing a preview of the Botanic Garden and, and I said, you know, whatever your major is, we can find something for you to work on. And the student said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in electrical engineering. You don't have anything here. And I said, are you kidding? We have so much exciting things happening around photovoltaic cells and passive heating, and we need electrical engineers interested in plants and botanical gardens. And, you know, seeing that student maybe reassess how relevant we were to them was really uh, rewarding. Um, And, you know, so working with students across disciplines, I think, is is beneficial to them and to us. I love yeah. seeing new perspectives brought into botanical gardens. I love um, I love being shaped by our students and by their interests. I feel like in a lot of ways we are really effective at redefining the relevance of botanic gardens, and it's because we're embracing what our students want. What are they interested in? How do we find relevance to them? I'm certain we will find it. You know, everything relies on plants. We can look at our our smartphones. We can um, fly anywhere in the world that we want to, but the reality is we can't do anything without plants. Uh, They produce our food, they produce our energy. Everything in, you know, everything we use is either a, a direct um, product of plants or an indirect product of plants. And it's kind of, they're so ubiquitous in our lives that it's easy to, to, to lose track of that. It's almost like forgetting that we're breathing. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. If you're just joining us, 
Tim Johnson is the director of the Botanica Garden at Smith College. Jamila DePisa Kern is a junior at Smith. We'll be right back for more of their university-based garden life journeys. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week. It was a long, really long 2020, and it will not be a short 2021 by all foreseeable measures. And that's okay. We're gardeners. We can work with determination, patience, and faith. What else is gardening, after all? I am really loving the fact that this episode comes on the heels of our final episode in 2020 with Duran Chavis. He rightly recounted for us some of the failures of imagination in botanical gardens and in the garden world in general these last 150 to 400 years. This kind of hindsight is important for us to see, to say, to acknowledge, and to understand. It is only from there that we are going to be able to move forward freely, fairly, and forcefully. Which is why I so love this episode, the story of an old botanic gardens in many ways based on a colonizing and acquisitive, extractive mindset, but also on an educational mindset. An educational mindset with a capacious enough perspective to understand that the exclusion of women from all the academic botanical fields was not only ridiculous, but a disservice to our world. This point is not everything that's going to solve our problems, but it's an important access point for how we might begin. It motivates me to hear Tim and Jamila talk about their work and hopes at this historic, educational, university-based botanic garden, their hopes for its future, a future not understood by simply whether the garden itself will survive or have enough funds to continue, but a future based on their far-reaching visions on how they serve the greater world in thriving, how they adapt and evolve and respond to be of relevance and cultural integrity in this world moving forward. These are the questions all of us should be asking, all of our gardens should be asking, and all of our cultural institutions should be asking. And if there are no substantive answers to these questions from these gardens in these times, well, maybe that's an answer in itself, isn't it? And that's a fresh start, too, because cultural competency is prismatic. And while it definitely includes botany and horticulture and gardening, it does not include a narrow mind or a small imagination as to what is possible. Together, we really do grow better.
We're back now to our conversation with Jamila DePisa Kern, a Smith College undergraduate, and Tim Johnson, director of the 125-year-old teaching and botanic garden at Smith. I really liked what you said there about that almost mandate for us as plants people to get out of the boxes we've put ourselves in, you know, called botany or um, a botanic garden, and to uh, think creatively about uh, poignantly reminding every discipline on a campus or in a world uh, that, that they are plants are integral to what they do in some way, even if they can't see it. And we've, we have taken it for granted and haven't pointed it out again. So, um, that gives me a lot more hope, Tim, about the fact that botany was dropped here and, uh, a lot more hope that the plants people in my area will, um, and, and in all areas will be able, as you are doing to think creatively and, um, challenge disciplines to not only see, but take action on where plants come into what they are doing. And um, turning to you now, Jamila, I mean, I, as a young person who is facing her, you know, kind of imminent future, you know, to think about your majors and your focus areas, they are so dependent on and interdependent on being knowledgeable and comfortable and wanting to learn, curious about plants. Yeah. Um, I was also just going to speak to Tim's point. Um, I think Smith is doing a really, or in the Botanic Garden is doing a great job of connecting people and students from all different disciplines um, to plants and the Botanic Garden and um, I think um, the horticulture classes at Smith are are truly wonderful and do a really good job of just showing the importance of plants um, in our everyday lives. And um, and I think Gabby, who teaches the horticulture classes, is amazing and you know really just imparts such a deep love for um the plants in the landscape all around us that it's just so infectious um and i think everyone gets excited about it as we come close to um the end of our time here uh, you know and i think we've covered quite a bit of this but i would love to have you each kind of reflect on what your future goals are or how you are measuring your own level of success um, in relationship to plants as you, you know, look to this year. I'm not sure how long um, Smith is intending, or and maybe they don't know, as many campuses don't, how long they will be um, learning remotely. But what yeah, what are what are what would be one or two future goals for you, and how do you measure success uh, in your own work right now? Let's start with you, Jamila. So, um, say future goals. I'm hoping to go 
on into a um, landscape architecture or design related field um, after college. And I'm not exactly sure what that's gonna look like right now, um, but I'm really interested in um, community engagement and um, designing green spaces for um, urban areas. Um, and I think too often that designed infrastructure like parks um, end up acting as agents of segregation and stratification. So I really wanna find ways to make green spaces equitable and accessible and available to everyone and specifically to communities that don't have access to them. Um, so, I mean, I think in my landscape studies class that I'm taking this semester, we've just been reading an article about how um, neighborhoods that are poorest and uh, inhabited mostly by people of color have less uh, trees and just plant cover. So they are significantly hotter in the summers than other areas of the city that you know are wealthier and whiter. So I feel like I really want to try and counteract that and create actively anti-racist landscapes um, without and creating those spaces that so that they're available to the people who need them most and aren't acting as agents of gentrification or pushing out people that really need access to green yeah. spaces. Yeah. Tim. So let me talk short term first, I guess. You know, since the pandemic started, my team and I have focused on three things. Number one is campus safety, making sure that the campus is safe. Number two is collection care, making sure that uh, all the plants are, are alive and, and thriving. And then number three is curricular engagement, never losing track of the fact that we are here for the students and to provide that, help provide that Smith education. Um, in the longer term, I think Jamila is the future we want. I think I want to, I want to work for Jamila someday. Um, yeah, me too. On all of those projects. I think I want to make sure, you know, that personally, I think that we have a place, an important place to play in really diversifying this, the people who enter our discipline. Um, to diversifying perspectives, to serving broader needs. Um, I think that's, that's a big goal for me. I want annual conferences to be more diverse. I want the colleagues that I call up on a regular basis to be more diverse. Um, and I think that's happening and it's, it's exciting to see. You know, I think gardens really, like I like I said, have a have a critical place to play in in social and environmental justice, and it's maybe not as radical as people think. I want the conversation to change a little bit. I want um, I've been thinking a lot about aesthetics, this sort of stand-in that we use for beauty, and and. Um, whether or not gardens are political or not. And I'm coming to see even that when, when people speak about we, we like gardens because we like the aesthetics, that that's a 
political statement, our culture, our upbringing, our history shapes what we think is and isn't beautiful. And I want gardens to become more aware of that and, and to be more reflective of the aesthetics of many different people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are, we are protectors of biodiversity and that really has to extend into our appreciation and valuation of human diversity as well, cultural diversity. You know, and, and good, smart, caring people have been preparing this ground for us for, for many, many years. And it's really interesting to me that these kind of colliding urgencies of um, environmental, uh, you know, crisis and um, political and uh, cultural crisis and... Um, global health crisis is actually like throwing dispersing seeds that is finding this ground that people have been preparing. And, um, I too, uh, you know, to have, and I know it's complicated. I know urban green spaces and safety and, and access and not having them be stratifiers or gentrifiers. Like these are complex problems, but we have creative and innovative brains and hearts uh, coming up that will continue this work. And they give me such immense hope uh, that we will stop asking the wrong questions and reframe our view and be in dialogues that create and perpetuate and nurture this meaningful shift in paradigm. Can, Is I, there... can I add one yes, thing on that point, Jennifer? Absolutely. I, I just... Yeah which also speaks to what Jamila was just talking about is never losing track of the, the reality that inequity was built by design. Yep. It is structural. It, things are the way they are because they were designed to be this way. And that can be really challenging. Uh, it can have severe consequences, lethal consequences for people. Yep. The good news is that we can build new structures. We can do things differently. Once we acknowledge that it was by design, we can design differently. Yep. Yeah. Robin Wallkammerer, who I'm sure you're both aware of, had has a, a wonderful kind of perspective on this. And that is that if there were schools that could take away her people's language and culture from them, then there are schools that can build it back. And Um, having interviewed Jamaica Kincaid several times and having both of these women in, in my book, you know, Jamaica Kincaid was adamant and articulate and clear in the mid 1990s about the racism built into our horticultural legacy. And again, makes clear that if we can see that, just as you said, Tim, um, you know, if somebody built racism into our garden world, uh, then there are plenty of us gardeners who can dig it out and compost it over and uh, move forward with a better there garden There could be a life. lot more said on this, but I think that um, Smith is also in the Botanic Garden is um, doing a good job of trying to think of its history and sort of challenge the status quo. And so last semester, I was in an anthropology class that we researched um, with the Botanic Garden if it was like decolonizing the botanic garden was our research topic. Um, and all the students we 
um, made suggestions um, that were given to the Botanic Garden Administration for steps that uh, could be taken to um, decolonize the Botanic Garden. And I mean, that's a really big topic, um, trying to figure out what decolonization means and um, how one can get to a decolonized landscape. Um, but I think just the fact that um, Botanic Garden is thinking about these topics and considering what steps it can take is really, really important. Give me an example, if you can, of one or two of the suggestions you made. Some of my um, recommendations that I made were um, creating sort of maybe dismantling or uh, some of the more formal European gardens in, um, and replacing them with permaculture gardens um, to sort of uh, increase sustainability and um, sort of form a more reciprocal relationship um, with the land, which is something that Robin Welkimer also writes about. And we read her for our class and I was really inspired um, by what she had to say. And then another suggestion I made was a the creation of an advisory board, um, which would be made up of students and um primarily people of color, maybe local Northampton residents to help advise decisions made by the Botanic Garden to kind of avoid the group think where everyone's just like thinking in one way and yeah, really add um, diverse thoughts and opinions. It has been such a pleasure, real pleasure to have you both and to know that you are out there teaching, teaching the world with plants in your heart. So Thank you very much for being guests on the program today, Jamila and Tim. Thank you, Jennifer. It's good to see you, Jamila. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful. The Botanic Garden at Smith College opened its now extensive collection spanning the more than 100-acre campus of the college in 1895. The garden celebrated its 125th anniversary in 2020. Tim Johnson is the director of the garden going on four years now, and Jamila Depisa Kern is a student in her junior year at Smith. She has been involved with the Botanic Garden since her earliest days on campus. Join us again next week when we continue our Fresh Starts series with a conversation I enjoyed late last summer with a long-established friend in the gardening world, Doug Tallamy. His latest book, Nature's Best Hope, envisions a fresh look and commitment to rethinking how much of the suburban United States sees, uses, and cultivates their places. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The podcast is listener-supported through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. In this first week of the new year, make sure to head over to cultivatingplace.com for more information and many images from the Botanic Garden at Smith College. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can subscribe right there on the website and make it a New Year's fresh start resolution to never miss an expansive view with Cultivating Place in your weekly feed. 
Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.